Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about the character and nature of Jesus. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to do two things. First, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. We put out a new sermon every week, and we're going to upload some bonus sermons soon. I think I already told you about that. We have the first sermon I ever preached at our church 16 years ago, a sermon I preached from the only pulpit Martin Luther King Jr. preached from in Oregon, and some other sermons I preached at different places as a guest. So please subscribe. The other thing I'd love for you to do is connect with us on social media. We think it is awesome that our sermons get listened to by a lot of people around the world. We think it is awesome that you are one of those people, and we want to connect with you. One of the best places to do that is on Instagram. Our church's username is Creekside Picks, and I'm Chad A. Harms. I mean it when I say we want to connect. It would be great to be able to see your faces, even if it's just on a screen. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you learn and live more fully for the glory of God. I want to turn our attention to, hopefully it's already there, but uh, uh, to the book of John this morning. And I just want to start by saying that I think, and you probably, maybe you felt this a little bit, but it's really easy to view God incorrectly. And when you do, it starts to affect every area of your spiritual life. And, and the number one way I notice when I'm viewing God incorrectly is, is really in prayer. And I can become too, uh, too casual in prayer sometimes, but also I can become too formal in prayer sometimes. And, and, and I think that often that's coming from a place of, of just not seeing God correctly. But it, but it happens when we worship, right? Like when we sing music, you can really see it. If, you've, if you're not viewing God correctly and you show up and you sing these songs, then and it can be so easy to not even think about what you're saying or to approach it really in a light way or maybe too heavy of a way or, you know, I don't know, somewhere in between. Uh, and, and frankly, and you may not recognize this in your life, but I think when we view God incorrectly, it affects the way we live entirely. It affects every part of how we live our lives. And I want to ask a hypothetical question to you and hopefully one you've thought about, but maybe not. Like, what do you think about when you think about God? Like, what is it that is, you know, you're picturing, you're thinking about, for example, when you pray? Like, what is it, what are you praying to? What are you thinking about? Uh, who are you thinking about when you are praying? What does that look like? And as we be have begun to study through the book of John, we've begun to see how we can more rightly view God. Uh, we understand God better by studying Jesus more. That's a big part of it. If you're not reading about the life of Jesus, if you're not trying to understand the life of Jesus, if you know nothing about the life of Jesus, then it's going to be almost impossible for you to view God correctly. You just can't do it. And in our passage today, John really builds on this idea in a way that, man, it's the pinnacle of the prologue. It's, it's the climax of the prologue. And, and it's this theologically rich and spiritually amazing passage of Scripture that builds on this idea that, that Jesus is God in human form. And so for us to understand God rightly, we must understand Jesus more. And here's what John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
Now you remember, if you've been around, I hope you remember that, that at the very beginning of the book of John, the word is the title that John, the author, uses for Jesus. He uses the term the word. And, and when I preached on this before, I said the answers to the questions that you ask about God can be found in, in Jesus. That's really why I think he uses the word, the word, the phrase, the word. We've seen that the word created all that has been created. We've seen that the word was God before creation. We've seen the word is God and was with God. And I tell you all that just to remind you of how staggering John 1.14 is. It's a really famous verse. If you've grown up in church, you've been around church, and you've heard the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, or at least the King James Version. But it's it's this statement that we're familiar with, and the reality is, we all know this, that sometimes when we're familiar with something, especially maybe the Bible, then, then it can lose its powerful powerfulness in our midst. We can, we can lose, it can lose its effect on our lives. And, and so I remind you of how John set this up because, because I think it's really important to see how shocking of a phrase this is, a shocking expression, as D.A. Carson says, that the word would become flesh and dwell among us. Now, we've already seen quite clearly that, that the creator became the creation. That was the point of my last sermon. The creator of all that has been created became, became part of creation. But the, the difference here that's so staggering is that not only did the creator become, come into the creation, the creator actually became the creation. That's a nuance that we must pay attention to. The creator didn't just come to his creation, he became the creation. As D.A. Carson again says, he donned our humanity save only our sin. The one who made everything became part of what he made. It's an incredible idea, an incredible statement that, that we can't just ignore, we can't look over it, we must pay attention to it. The eternal being that we call God became a person. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 describes it this way. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, in, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even on a cross. Who is, who is Jesus, right? Like that's the question we've been asking. Who is Jesus? And Jesus is the creator that became the creation. I think as we've gone through this, I've been, I don't know, dancing around this idea. I may have mentioned it quickly, but, but it's an important theological truth that I think I just need to say out loud, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. To view him in any other way is to view him incorrectly. Uh, Matt mentioned this phrase a couple of weeks ago, hypostatic union, and he said it as though everybody has heard it before and carried right along like, sweet, I'm glad we're all on the same page. But uh, to, to you know, help him be a better teacher, I think it's important for, for me to to just give you a definition of this. Simply put, it means that in the person of Jesus are two natures, divinity and humanity, in complete unity without mixture, change, division, or separation. Jesus is fully God and fully man. 
Jesus is the God-man. Now, this is a clear teaching of Scripture, but even, I think, more profoundly, more importantly, it is a clear teaching of Jesus himself, that he is man and that he is God. He makes these declarations so clearly. And yet, people play around with this idea far too frequently. C.S. Lewis famously declared that, that we must we must say that Jesus is one of three things. Either he is Lord, he is lunatic, or he is liar. He is Lord, lunatic, or liar. And at the heart of that for C.S. Lewis is simply that Jesus claimed to be God. And if he made that claim and it's untrue, then either he was crazy or he was the world's greatest, biggest liar. I choose to believe that he is Lord, but I would bring this up today in order to just just cause you to consider the claim that the author of John is making, the claim that Jesus himself made, that he is in fact God. And so many people just like the idea of Jesus. They, they think, wow, a revolutionary, a nice guy, a little bit hippie-ish, you know, like he was a good teacher, morally wonderful. But that is not at the center, at the heart of Christianity. It's a much bigger claim that God became human. That Jesus is fully God and fully man. That Jesus is the God-man. That the creator of all that has been created became the creation. That is at the center of what we call Christianity. And if you just like Jesus but have never thought about that, then you need to think again about this character named Jesus. If you just think that he was a good guy who taught good moral lessons, but you've never considered that he claimed to be God, then you need to reconsider what you think about Jesus. Really quickly, I think that, that man, this idea is even made more clear when he says he made his dwelling among us. This is more literally that he tabernacled among us. And, and since we just celebrated Sukkot, I think this is so important to bring up. Sukkot is also known as the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles. And, and, and so we celebrate that holiday. And what we celebrate in that is in large part that while the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, God was with them and he took care of them. If you were there, then, then I said that over and over. God was present with his people and he provided for his people. And his presence was manifest primarily in this tent that they called the tabernacle. God was with his people in this tent that they would set up wherever they went. And so it is no mistake, it is no accident that when John is writing this prologue, he says the creator became the creation, or in other words, he tabernacled with us. He is saying the same God that dwelt in the midst of the Israelite in that temple dwelt in our midst as a man. That is a big, huge, important claim. Jesus is the person, the place where God chose to manifest himself on earth when he walked on this earth. Now, I know some of you may say like, Whatever, other religions have claimed the same thing. Not many, by the way, very obscure religions, but, but you may 
claim that, but this next, man, this next statement, I think, is what's so radically different than all of, you know, any other religion that might say, well, yeah, our God walked around, like, you know, like, just that claim, because listen, I mean, this, this, I've harped on this idea, but it's stated so clearly in this next line, and, and I just don't think it can be ignored. If you're a person who's rejected Jesus, you know, your whole life, like, I just don't think you can ignore this without at least, at least exploring whether or not it might be true. So he says, the creator became the creation. He dwelt amongst us. And then he says in verse 14, we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. This isn't some statement like, you know, people have seen his glory. This is a guy, John, the author of this book saying, we, me and my friends have actually seen his glory. It's not like we're claiming this as, uh, you know, some big idea that maybe God came to earth across the world and hung out with some people. This is no fable. This is no fictional story. Like I, the author of this book, saw the glory of the creator who became the creation. At our church, we make a big deal about God's glory. We exist to help people experience and express that glory, and it's a very hard word to define glory. I've said in the past that it's like defining beauty. What does that even mean? But here, just quickly, the word connects to the manifestation of God, visual demonstrations of God's holiness, God's greatness, that which makes God bigger, better, more amazing than humans. It's a visual manifestation of that. John is saying we have seen this visual manifestation of God and his name was Jesus. His name was Jesus. This guy that I hung out with, this guy that I walked with and talked with and went fishing with and was friends with and shared meals with, this is the visual manifestation of God. I saw it. It bothers me, if you can't tell, that so many people just reject Jesus or kind of like Jesus without really even considering whether or not it might be true that he is God in human form that came to save sinners. And it bothers me in large part because there are these men who wrote the Bible who died in order to hold to the belief that he was God in human form and came to give his life for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. I just hate that people would hear this claim by people who hung out with him and say, ah, I don't really, you know, whatever. I'm not going to read about that. I'm not going to read the Bible. I'm not going to even ask whether or not that might be true. I think it's one of the great tragedies of, of the world that, that the creator came to the creation and they, we so quickly reject him without, whether, without considering whether or not that claim might be true. And, and the author continues, explains this glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, there's this, this relationship here that, that I think we've also been alluding to, but not stating outright. And I want to put a picture up on the screen. And 
And this is, this is the relationship. We've talked about the Trinity that we believe as Christians in a triune God. Uh, this is a, an altered version of a picture that's often put up. But what we believe about Jesus is that Jesus is not the same as the Father. In fact, Jesus prays to the Father, another being in this Trinitarian God that we believe in. But yet they are both God. And as we talk about Jesus being both fully man and fully God, it's important to recognize that there is a relationship that exists within God. I know it's very confusing. It's difficult to understand. But there is a relationship biblically that exists between Jesus, who takes on the part of the Son, and the Father in heaven. Jesus prays. The Father is present at his baptism. And so in the in the Christian world, we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, but yet there is a, there is a relationship with the Father who is also fully God. Now, there's an illusion in this passage that I think, you know, we have to have this in mind, but also it, it you know, it may kind of muck it up for us a little bit, because in this passage, this statement, the glory of the one and only Son, there's actually this allusion to this very, very old story, and it's this story of a guy named Moses, whom God tasked, if you don't know who he is, with leading the Israelite people out of slavery. And, and at this one point in Moses' life, he asked God to show him his glory and God responds by telling Moses to get behind a rock and says, I'll pass by. You can't look at the front of me, but you can look at the, you can look at the back of me. And so Moses goes up on this mountain. He chisels out the Ten Commandments. Maybe you know about those. And then this thing happens next. In Exodus 34, 5 through 7. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. As he passed in front of Moses, pro proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of generations. God showed Moses his glory. And then notice what God declares as he does that, that he's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, loving, and faithful. In other words, what is he saying? That he is full of grace and truth, steadfastness, faithfulness, consistency. And the point here that John is making as he writes this is really quite clear. Even though there's this interplay between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, even though that exists and that's you know, sometimes difficult to understand what you need to get from John. What he's trying to say to you is the God who Moses saw from behind the rock is the same God that the disciples saw in the flesh. He alludes to this incredible Old Testament story where Moses literally has to get behind a rock so he doesn't die in the presence of God. And he says, we have seen that same being in the flesh. D.A. Carson says, The glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him and sounded his name, displaying that divine goodness characterized by ineffable grace and truth was the very same glory John and his friends saw in the Word made flesh. Isn't that a crazy idea? I think that even as longtime Christians, we can, we can kind of make this separation between the God of the Old Testament and Jesus and the God of the New Testament. And sometimes we don't think that he's faithful or gracious in the Old Testament, but then 
suddenly Jesus was born and became all of those things. But John will have none of that here. He's saying that same God came down to live amongst us and we have seen his glory. Then there's like this parenthetical statement John testified concerning him. That's John the Baptist testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Some people thought that maybe John the Baptist was greater than Jesus because he came first and in their culture coming first was a big deal. But, but John says, hey, even that guy that a lot of you Jewish people respected named John the Baptist who baptized people who Matt preached about a couple of weeks ago, even that guy said that this guy came before him. And then John continues in verses 16 and 17, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I love that phrase, grace in place of grace. It's an incredible line. It's a, it's, it, I think you can just feel it, right? Like you feel that line without any explanation. But what does it mean? It's a great question. And really what it means is that the Old Testament contained the law, right? And the giving of the law to Moses. Remember, he has the story of Moses in the backdrop here. And basically what he's saying is that when God gave Moses the law, that was super gracious of him. In fact, the law was given to the Israelite people, maybe you don't know this, at a time in human history where people were trying to figure out laws in general. What should we legislate? What what should we have rules about? How should we punish people? What should we do here? So the nations were trying to figure this out. What does it look like to have laws? What does it look like to govern people? And the Israelites, they just got theirs from God. And we may look at the Old Testament law and say, we don't like pieces of that. But for them, it was like this incredible, gracious thing that they didn't have to figure any of that out. God just said, here's how you're going to run your life country. Here's what you're going to do. And by the way, I just want to, I just side note, I've been reading through the uh, law recently in my own private Bible reading time. I've started to read through the Bible again. And, and, and this thing struck me the other day, not, you know, connected to this sermon at all, but this thing struck me. A lot of times we're bothered by some of the laws in the Old Testament, but if you read them closely, It's not hard to make a case for almost every single law that the Israelites were given that it's all driven by God's care for people. Now, you may not like how harsh the punishment is for breaking some of those laws. That's where we get hung up. But a lot of times it's really easy. Most of the time I would say it's really easy to say that punishment is super harsh because God cares about people so much to begin with. He doesn't want his people being hurt. He doesn't want people being, you know, stolen from. He doesn't want people being killed. And so he made harsh punishments in order to protect the people to begin with. And so you could say, even in the giving of this law, even in what the law says, there's incredible grace. But on top of that, on top of it just being nice that God gave the law, that the law is driven by by taking care of his people, it's also what made his people his people. I mean, this is the, the giving of the Ten Commandments is at the heart of the Israelite people becoming God's people. And so for them, the giving of the law was, was, was wonderful just because they had law, but also because it was a sign. It was at the center of them becoming God's people in the first place. And so when John says grace has been given in place of grace, he's saying 
The law was gracious and it was given to the Israelite people, but now a new and better grace has come. Because if you don't know the story, the story is simply this. The law was given and the people just broke it over and over and over again. Every time life was good for the Israelite people, they just rejected God completely. It's not as if the Israelites were unique in that because all of us reject God in our own ways. And sometimes I would say, especially when life is easy, we just turn our minds away from God and we do whatever we want. But that's the story of human history. God has set a standard for us and we have not lived up to it. We have not cared to live up to it. In fact, we have made ourselves in the history of the world, people have made themselves the enemies of God. And so when we talk about the creation coming to the creator coming to his creation and becoming his creation, the reason for that, the reason that Jesus came is so that he could once and for all set people right in their relationship with God by offering forgiveness for sin. Jesus came, and I love this part. He, he lived on this earth, and you know how hard life can be. And, and, and he chose to live here amongst us. He chose to dwell amongst people. You know how many people you don't like, right? He chose to come and be around the people you don't like. And, and he, he lived a perfect life. And at the end of that perfectly sinless life, he willingly chose to allow for himself to be arrested, to be mocked, to be beaten, to be tortured, and then to be crucified. And he died on a cross. He was laid in a grave, and then he came back from the dead. And he did it all to pay the punishment for the sins that you and I have committed. And so while the giving of the law was gracious, it has no comparison to this new grace of God coming into humanity, becoming human in order to save you from our sins. It was mentioned earlier that we're going to post our, my first sermon ever preached at this church. And, and in that sermon, I use this phrase that I have forever used. I, I, I had just come up with it just prior to that sermon in a youth group sermon uh, because I was the youth pastor then and, and it stuck with me forever and ever and ever. Ridiculously amazing grace. And I used that phrase the first time. I probably just popped out of my mouth, but I used it because this grace, this new grace doesn't make sense in a, in a you know, a worldly human way. That the God of the universe, the creator of all that has been created would enter into his creation if you really think about that, you should just be flabbergasted. Like, why in the world would God come here to die for us? Even more specifically, why in the world would God come here to die for me? I mean, I know how many times I've rejected him and how flippant I can be towards this grace, but yet he did it anyway. And so John says, look, we've seen his glory. And the glory came in order that this old grace, which was pretty good, might be replaced by this new grace that is ridiculously amazing. And then he returns to this, this theme, one that he's already covered, but he, he says it in a more emphatic way in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father has made him known. Made known translates a Greek word that people have, have said could, could connect to like exegesis or narrative, that Jesus is the 
the narrative of God. He really tells the story of who God is because he is God in human form. And so he acts as a translator to us into the character and the nature of God. And so I'll say again, if you want to know more about what God is like, then you must understand who Jesus is more fully. Jesus emphatically says this, in John 14, 9, it says, Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? And this is right after Philip said, like, show us the Father, show us God. And, and Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? If you want to know what God is like, then you must study Jesus more. And if you're studying Jesus, then you're going to quickly see that he is full of grace and truth. And you're going to quickly come to the understanding that the God who created all is a God that is gracious and faithful to people despite how we reject him and how we have rejected him. There's two things right at the beginning that we learn about God. And and I said it at the beginning, like we can view God incorrectly so frequently. But when you look at the life of Jesus, you have to start with this. God is full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. He's full of grace and truth. Who is Jesus? I'll tell you, the better you can answer this question, the more you'll view God correctly. And that will change how you pray and how you think and how you live your entire life. I promise that when I, this is for me, look Listen, when I view God best, there are three things that I am balancing in my mind. First, and this isn't in this passage, God's glory or his power, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his creativity, you know, that God is big, right? That God is strong, that God is powerful. And sometimes I can lean away from that, but I have to hold that in my head. But then that God is faithful, And God is gracious. So easy, right, on the dark days to think like, God, do you still care about me? Do you you still love me? Are you still paying attention to me? Are you still on my side? Are you still working for me? And the life of Jesus shows us that God is faithful and reminds us that God is absolutely still for us and with us and taking care of us. He will never leave us, nor will he forsake us. He will always be there with us, working all things for the good of those who love him. And it's so easy to forget that God is gracious, but remembering what the life of Jesus demonstrates, we come back to that God is gracious to me. He's quick to forgive me. He's slow to anger. He's not just up there. And I, I, maybe I'm alone in this, but I'm guilty of thinking that God, I just fall into this trap of thinking like God just wants me to do all these things. and He's just ready to get me if I mess up and he's not going to answer my prayers anymore. And he's not going to bless the ministry that I do. And, and, and the life of Jesus pulls me away from that. It reminds me, reminds me that God is gracious. God is gracious. The reality for me in my life is that I've actually chosen to serve God because at some point in my life, I recognize those three things about God that he is powerful, faithful, and gracious. And that's the God that I serve. That's the reason that I serve him. That's the reason that I try every day to live for him. I fail frequently, but that I try to live for him every day. And and I say to you, I would say to you that if you don't remember God's power, and then more specifically this passage, his faithfulness, 
and his graciousness, then you will do a poor job of living your life for him. And so instead of that, recognize what John has declared in this prologue, the way he finishes this prologue. The creator has become the creation. He has seen his glory and his glory reminds us, teaches us, shows us that God is faithful and gracious to you. And so live your life for him. Let me pray that that will be true. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came from heaven to earth the old song says, to show the way. And you showed the way to salvation, Lord. You offered the way to salvation. But on top of that, you have shown us what you are like. A God who is not with us is not a God that we could understand very well. A God who just lives in a tent, a God who lives in a temple, is not a God that we can understand very well because we are these finite, you know, humans. But Lord, you chose to become human. And in so doing, you have, you have given us the narrative for what you are like. You have taught us what you are like. You have exegeted, God, the scriptures that teach about you in a way that we can understand. And I pray, Lord, that we would not be so stupid to not pay attention to your life and, and not understand what you are like. I, I pray that we would be a people who want to, to know to read about, to study your life, Jesus, so that we can understand you better. And I pray, God, for all of us, that as we understand you better, then we would live for you more, Lord. For people who have never given their life to you and they've rejected you out of hand, they've rejected you without even a second thought, I pray, God, that they would understand that you are either Lord, lunatic, or liar, and that, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would lead them to a place where they would declare you Lord. They would declare you the God-man who came to save sinners. And for those of us who are Christians, God, let us never, God, drift from understanding you rightly because we are always coming back to, to reading about your incredible life. And at the center, God, of what we believe about you, I pray that we would always remember that you are faithful and gracious to us and it would compel us to live entirely for you, God, because you came to live and die for us. I pray all of these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.